Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Instantly, I was uplifted into huge regions of northern sky. I desired with almost sickening intensity something never to be described. Uh, and then, as in the other examples, I found myself at the very same moment already falling out of that desire and wishing I was back in it. What are we doing here on this journey of ours? How did C.S. Lewis figure it out? First through joy, then through reason? David Bates tells us all about it on Almost Good Catholics. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, a conversation about theology and apologetics. I'm your host, Chris Odinitz, and I get to ask interesting people who've thought about the big questions to share their conclusions, to explain what we know, how we know it, why we think we know it. I hope this format and dialogue and back and forth will help us approach the truth and have a great time doing it. If you'd like to join the conversation, please email almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. Today, my guest is David Bates. He grew up in England, where he earned his Bachelor of Science in Computer Science from Southampton University. And after, in his words, getting a little bored of his country's incessant rain, he left England and moved to Southern California, where he worked as a software engineer. David co-hosts the weekly podcast, Pints with Jack, discussing the works of C.S. Lewis, the Christian apologist and author of the Chronicles of Narnia. David also runs the website RestlessPilgrim.net. And prior to the COVID pandemic, he used to travel around the country giving talks on scripture, church history, and evangelization. He has made a good use of this extra time, though. In 2020, he proposed to and married his girlfriend, Marie. And last year, they bought a house in Wisconsin and moved there shortly before the birth of their son, Alexander. Alexander has five teeth and keeps mom and dad awake at night, growing the sixth. That (laughs) that is a great um, bio, David. And congratulations. Thank you very much. We're currently going through sleep training at the moment, so he's yes. getting much more sleep than I am. <laughs> That's how it goes. Uh, and uh, you'll, you're going to blink and he'll be off to college, I know. Um, <laughs> so my kids are, are all a little bit older, and this week they all have their spring break, as does my wife. And they're, they all went backpacking. So I have spring break next week, so I'm still here holding down the fort, and it's kind of a weird feeling. And I know you did that last month when Marie and Alexander went to Kentucky. Yes, it was really strange. It was great to be able to stretch out in the bed. But after after the novelty of that passed, I immediately went back to my side. And even <laughs> though I had nobody crying in the middle of the night, I still woke up at regular intervals just to check that there was nothing that I needed to do. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I uh, I leave for work very early in the morning. That's my most productive time. And so I usually have all my clothes ready uh, in the other room and I sort of tiptoe out. And this week, I just like I wake up, I turn on the light. I think I'll go take a shower, you know, I, I just stomp around the house like, like I own the place. It's really funny. Yeah. Um, so do you have a joke you'd like to share with us, David? I do. Uh, I am recently a father, but people have said that I've had dad jokes forever. So well, let's, let's see how this one is. A guy walks into a bar and he sees a sign which says, win the carnivore challenge and get free drinks. And, you know, free drinks sound like a great idea to him. So he asks the bartender, to explain how all of this works. And the bartender tells him, well, we've hung three pieces of meat from the ceiling. And if you can jump up and slap each of them, you get free drinks the rest of the night. But if you fail, you have to buy everyone here a drink. And the guy looks up and sure enough, there are three pieces of meat hanging from the ceiling. And so the bartender says, do you want to give it a shot? And the guy thinks so. The guy thinks a little bit. And then he decides, nah, the stakes are too high. <laughs> now, I did actually have another joke about my time with Aslan, but that's Narnia business. <laughs> very nice. Okay, I'm 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 going to use both of those on my kids. There, they will they will <laughs> like them very well. Um, since we've been emailing, I noticed uh, the photo in your email, which also appears on your website, Restless Pilgrim, of you hiking the Camino Santiago de Compostela. And this is mm. something I would love to do myself. 
I visited that great uh, church once, but I took the train and I hadn't really appreciated, <laughs> you know, I hadn't appreciated how, what, what it was. Uh, and then later I read the Paulo Coelho book about it and I saw the Martin mm. Sheen movie, uh, The Way, on, on the airplane once. And so I've been thinking about that. Um, so when'd you go and what was it like? And uh, I, I know your website is Restless Pilgrim, so you are a pilgrim <laughs> in every sense of the word. Yeah, I, I did it a few years ago. I had been working for the same company in the US for about a decade and I was ready for a change and I just sort of wanted to go and do something completely different and so I decided to quit my job and fly back home to England, see my mother briefly and then head to the south of France so I could go and walk across Spain. Uh, aside from marriage and fatherhood, easily some of my happiest months of my life just because your schedule, your agenda is really simple. Each morning you get up, you walk westwards. Mm. You do that for a few hours and then you stop, you eat, you walk a bit more and then you stop and eat and then have some sleep. And then you just rinse and repeat every day. And that rhythm was just wonderful. Also, because you're burning so many calories, you can pretty much eat a bar of chocolate a day. Just like a massive bar. It was wonderful. Uh, but it, 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 it was just, it's just a wonderful experience. And you can sort of experience the Camino in different ways, depending upon what you want out of it. So I really wanted to walk by myself most of the time, just to have that, that silence and solitude and just to, to think through everything in my life, what I was going to do next. Uh, but then when you come to the, the hostels where you're going to sleep for the night, that's when you can have some really wonderful camaraderie and community as everybody pitches in. And it would be quite often that, you know, a few people would go to the store and then they would cook dinner for everybody that was in the hostel. Uh, but it, it, was, it was just wonderful. And then you yeah. finally arrive at, uh, at, at the cathedral. And I actually walked for three days more because I didn't want to say that I'd walked across most of Spain. Uh -huh. So I walked the extra three days to Finisterra, which is, you know, the end of the earth. It's as, as, as far west as you can go. And that was that was for me was the really satisfying feeling when i was standing on a cliff edge looking out at the sea and i even told people i'm pretty sure i can see the statue of liberty uh, <laughs> uh, but to know that there is nowhere else to walk that yeah. you've completed it, it it was just wonderful that's it um, unless you're a repeat cheap and you get in your little carrack <laughs> keep going uh, yeah. I've only I've I've done a few short. I've hiked the Spey River Trail and the West Highland Way, and that was also with it was I don't know if hostels, but it was bed and breakfast, and you talk to people and so on. Um, so I love the you know every night landing in the place and every morning going. And my wife has done the Appalachian Trail, which oh, took wow. her you know many months and um, was so formative for her. So it's uh, anyway I admire I admire this achievement, and I hope to uh, do it myself one day. And your website mm -hmm. says. We are travelers not yet in our native land, St. Augustine. Mm. The whole Restless Pilgrim idea really happened when I moved to the States. And I was just traveling around. And I was in my 20s, and I still hadn't quite found what I was looking for, to quote the song. Yeah. And, and I, I just really connected with that idea of pilgrimage, that we're not yet home. We're not yet in our native land. Yeah. Oh, I, w yes. What a metaphor for our whole Christian life. And the simplicity of it, I think, is what we should be striving for because we overcomplicate everything we do. And it's, <laughs> it doesn't need to be like that. Mm. Um, I've, uh, somebody recently told me the reason we say nave for a church is because the, the church is a ship. It's not a, mm. it's not a home. It's a, it's a ship getting us there. Um, here's my big question for you, and then I have a bunch of other questions, but the, the big question that I wanted to ask you today is, how are C.S. Lewis's beliefs grounded in the teachings of the church? I know he's a mere Christian and not a Christian and, but I'd like to ask you how he learned his beautiful theology. And I bet you've traced it. Am I right? And uh, <laughs> could you talk about that? And since his voice is familiar and genial, he never gives us belabored footnotes. And you'll have to forgive me here because I'm a historian by training. So I've, I've spent a lot of time on footnotes. Um, so it's hard for me to tell. How does he know what he knows? How do you know that he's right? And so on. Mm. Well, you can find out a lot of Lewis's story in his spiritual autobiography. It's called Surprised by Joy. And there he talks us through particularly his childhood and the formative experiences that he had there. And he was raised in Ireland and he was raised in a form of Protestant Protestantism. Uh, but when he went to school, he basically became an atheist 
uh, he had experienced some real tragedy in his life. His mother had died. That probably contributed to it in, in many ways. But he also found very much the Christian intellectual tradition, or at least as it was presented to him, very lacking. For example, he, he loved the pagan mythology, but his teachers told him that all of this was nonsense, but Christianity was true. And he couldn't see why Christianity got this free pass. Why isn't it all <laughs> just mythology? And he then also was a veteran of World War One. He actually arrived at the trenches, the front line in France on his 19th birthday. So he got to see some more of man's inhumanity to man and to really wrestle with the problem of pain. Uh, but when he returned to Oxford, things started to change. And I would say the two main things that formed him, firstly, was his reading. Lewis read extensively. If you ever met someone that you think has read a lot of books, that's a fraction of what this guy did. Mm. And he, we also know which books he read because he always wrote about them in his letters to his childhood friend, Arthur Greaves. He writes about them in Surprised by Joy. And actually, the Christian Century uh, magazine in 1962 asked the question, what books most shaped your vocational attitude and your philosophy on life? And he cites many of the examples that you find in his letters and in Surprised by Joy. Fantasties by George MacDonald. He also read a lot of Chesterton, particularly The Everlasting Man. Lewis read him while he was still an atheist and he thought Cheston was the most sensible man in Britain apart from his Christianity. It, it <laughs> took a while for him to recognize that that, that might have something to do with it. Uh, and he also read the classics and that included works like The Constellation of Philosophy by Boethius. And so Lewis had read extensively and he, he writes in Surprised by Joy. Let me just read this a little bit. He says, yes. All the books are beginning to turn against me. Indeed, I must have been as blind as a bat not to have seen long before the ludicrous con contradiction between my theory of life and my actual experiences as a reader. George MacDonald had done more for me than any other writer. Of course, it was a pity that he had that be in his bonnet about Christianity. <laughs> he was good in spite of it. Cheston had more sense than all the other moderns put together. Uh, except, of course, his Christianity. Even among ancient authors, I found the same paradox to be found. The most religious were clearly those on whom I could really feed. And then one of my favorite lines, he says, a young man who wishes to remain a sound atheist cannot be too careful of his reading. There are mm. traps everywhere. And so in addition to this, we could talk about the church fathers. Lewis didn't quote them very often, but he was definitely formed by people like St. Athanasius. He mm -hmm. actually wrote a, a, a preface for uh, on the Incarnation, a translation that was done by one of his one of his friends. He read Augustine because Augustine is the man of the West and a prolific writer. And you also see lots of uh, allusions to Dionysius. So he read deeply and he read the Western tradition. So all of these great works, uh, Catholic and Protestant alike. So that was one really strong element that, that formed him. But the other was his friends. And May, may I uh, interject? Sure. Do you think... Um his views about uh, heaven and hell that that I'm so interested in from screw tape letters from um, the great divorce. Do you think those have a uh, uh, you can trace those to the patristic fathers? You can certainly trace some ideas. So I think the big one is St. Augustine and his understanding of evil and his understanding of rightly ordered loves. So. Augustine didn't think that evil was a thing in itself. It was a privation. It was a twisting. It was seeking a good thing, but in the wrong way, to the wrong degree, at the wrong time. And you see that clearly expressed both in those works, in The Great Divorce and in Screwtape. You see people seeking after goods, but they're doing it in the wrong way. And their loves are also misordered. This season on the podcast, we've been looking at the four loves, and he deals with this explicitly. But you see it in the Screwtape Letters and in The Great Divorce. You see people loving something, but in the wrong way, mm -hmm. or to more than God. In The Great Divorce, you have the mother who wants her son, yes. and she actually loves her son more than God. And actually, because her loves are so disordered, she doesn't actually really even love her son. Yeah. It is something that has become twisted. It is, it, it's, it's become self-serving. Yeah, and she so wants I, to possess, I, possess him or... 
Exactly, yeah. exactly. And Augustine's idea of what evil is, you see it throughout Screwtape. Screwtape keeps on talking about, okay, so there's this good thing. He says, we can't actually even produce pleasures. We're on the enemy's territory. And by that, he means God's territory. Uh, he says, what we've got to do is we've got to take that and then we've got to twist it. We've got to twist it and turn it to, to, uh, to, to meet our goals. Mm-hmm. But uh, the world itself is good, and what is in us is good. Uh, but Screwtape's plan is to take these good things and twist it, and that is Augustinian through and through. And do you believe that uh, um, Augustine would have said that at the point where you can then let go of your attachments that you have twisted into your own prideful purposes, that this this kind of that you're able to uh, uncoil that and turn back toward God even even after death? The sort of the way that's implied in in that um, the foothills of paradise, which could be hell, which could be heaven, which could be purgatory, depending on which way you're headed from there. I don't think Augustine would say that. And no. I would, I, whenever anybody reads The Great Divorce, I always tell them, make sure you spend plenty of time in the preface. Because yes. Lewis explains what he's doing there. The Great Divorce is a supposal. And Lewis's most famous supposal is The Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, there he's saying, what if the second person of the Trinity made a world of talking animals? And what if he entered that world and sought to redeem it? What might that look like? And in The Great Divorce, he's doing another supposal. Although now the question that he's asking is, what would it be like if the souls in hell could visit heaven? What would happen if they actually had the option to remain there? Would they even want to? Mm-hmm. So he's exploring that idea. And it's not even to really ask questions about the afterlife. And he even says, I- I'm not even putting this forward as, uh, as a model of what happens. Lewis's purpose in writing that book is to show us how our choices, the m- things that we make here and now, how they help shape us. And ultimately, that we can end at a point where we are unwilling to let go of our hellish souvenirs. We are choosing something other than God. That, 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 is, that is the big idea. And each of the ghosts that you encounter that turn back to the town, they're unwilling to accept heaven because there's something else that they would prefer to hang on to instead. Okay, and I interrupted you. You were going to say he was influenced by his friends. Oh, <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, Lewis was greatly influenced by his friends. Uh, we can definitely talk about the Inklings, who was... These were, these were his friends. They, they bounced book ideas off each other. They read their manuscripts to each other. Uh, but these kinds of friendships became formative for him very early on um, in his childhood friend, Arthur Greaves, and also when he came to Oxford. Uh, let me read this other section from Surprised by Joy. He says, No sooner had I entered the English school than I went to George, uh, George Jordan's discussion class. And there I made a new friend. His name was Neville Coghill. I soon had the shock of the discovery that he, clearly the most intelligent and best informed man in that class, was a Christian and a thoroughgoing supernaturalist. Barfield was beginning to overthrow my chronological snobbery. Coghill gave it another blow. So there's yeah. lots of quotations I could pick from Surprised by Joy, but here you see he's, he's encountering people with a Christian worldview or at the very least a supernatural worldview because Owen Barfield at this point wasn't a Christian. He was actually an anthroposophist. But these friends around what is him... That? What's an anthroposophist? <laughs> <laughs> it's actually kind of hard to explain. It's a sort of esoteric, loosely Christian-based mysticism. Okay. It's, it's not really anything you would really call orthodox, yeah. They all had lots of very strange ideas. But Barfield and Lewis, they went into what they called their Great War, which is this extended debate as they were arguing about the nature of reality. And Barfield was a supernaturalist, and he believed that behind the universe was a mind. And at this point, Lewis was a materialist, and he just held that, nope, this is, this is all there is. And Barfield helped show him that that couldn't be the case. And it's referenced in that passage that I just read. Barfield helped cure Lewis of another blind spot that he had, because Lewis thought that new ideas were necessarily better, yeah. that old ideas were old. They, they must have been overturned. He, he at no point actually considered whether these arguments actually had been overturned. He just assumed that new was better. And it was very much in the zeitgeist at the time. And so uh, with all of these friends, Neville Coghill uh, and Owen Barfield, and then eventually J.R.R. Tolkien and Charles Williams, all of is, these uh, friends Is helped. Dorothy Sayers in that number? 
she, they were friends. She was never an official inkling, although she's as close to it as anybody else really got. Okay. She helped contribute to a collection of essays following Charles Williams's death. Okay. Uh, but she and Lois, they did meet, and they were fierce pen pals, and they supported one another, and they encouraged each other, in particularly in their work of apologetics. That's actually how some of Lewis's books came about at her urging, because she said, these people have been writing to me. Can you deal with it? <laughs> yeah. So here, here's my problem. My big problem is that, um, and uh, this is a question I've asked a few people now, I, I find that when I talk to my Protestant brothers and sisters, they're really eager to have people devote their lives to Christ right now before they die or it's too late. And this, from this, we get a lot of um, very earnest missionary work and evangelization, which you know I honor in its sincerity and and good intentions. But I also am afraid that when we push too hard, we actually repel uh, people from Christianity. Whereas I feel if we hold it gently with an open hand, people will come to it. And I've, I, I would like to believe, and I don't know if this is my own um, invention or if this is a sound idea that. Conversion can also happen after death when you go into hell where I think the doors are unlocked. And I base that on the Apostles' Creed that Jesus descended there on, on Holy Saturday. Do you think I'm making this up? Or do, you think it's, uh, do you think it's true? I would disagree. Okay. I would say that the hell that's referenced in the Creed is Hades. It is the realm of the dead. And traditionally, when we talk about Christ's descent into hell, it is into the realm of the dead, where he liberated uh, the, the fathers and took them to heaven, because prior to his death, burial, and resurrection, the gates of heaven were closed. So uh, in, the, in the scriptures, it talks about Christ preaching to those who are in prison, and that's what I would say that event was. So I don't know if we could talk about a conversion after death, because I, I, I don't think the Catholic faith really allows for that. However, it does allow us to uh, have some hope that those who haven't explicitly expressed uh, faith in Christ, had been in formal union with his church, uh, that they can be saved, that such a thing is possible. And you actually even see this in Lewis's own works. In The Last Battle, there is one character called Emeth, who is a Kalorman. And generally, the Kalormans are at war with the Narnians. But Aslan receives him as though he had always loved Aslan rather than one of their gods, a guy by the name of Tash. Yeah. And it's actually telling that how Lewis names him. He's named him Emeth, which literally means truth. So this is a man who was always seeking after truth, and he, he did the best with the light that was given to him. And so I think we can offer a level of hope uh, for, for those who don't do all of those things, who you know, aren't baptized, who don't explicitly express faith in Christ. But I think that the Catholic position is wise enough that this isn't guaranteed. And yeah. this way we can still retain the fervor of fulfilling the Great Commission, because this is what our Lord told us to do, go baptize nations. Yeah, well, so my problem is what happens to such a person who has had a very bad experience with our church, especially given mm. the scandals, or or you just had an, a very unskillful uh priest when you were growing up and you got you you became disenchanted with the with the faith and then you go along and you happen to find the loveliest community of buddhists or muslims or something like that you, you participate and you do it lovingly and deliberately and you know you die you die a good uh, a good muslim uh why can't it be like tosh and i i love this idea about tash but it, does that is that have does that have roots in you know uh, catholic authority or is it an invention of lewis's I wouldn't say it, it is wholly, it's made out of whole cloth. It's not, it's not just springing from his imagination. He would like it to be so, and that's the way it is. And Lewis actually even said that if he could get rid of one doctrine from Christianity, it would be hell. But he said, I, I just can't do that because it's in scripture and it's in the great tradition. I, I, we're stuck with it. Yeah. Um, but the, the problem that we get into is when we actually try and Make that make that prediction. Oh, this person's going to hell. Yeah, the, well. the church actually doesn't do that. The, the most the church does is is confirm that a saint is in heaven when their life has been investigated. It's been found they've lived a life of heroic virtue, and that through their intercession, a miracle has come about. That heaven has uh, validated the church's assessment that this person is a saint. The church doesn't do it around the doesn't do it around the other way, 
And I think that's, that's, the, that's the thing that we really need to hang on to when we are asking these sorts of questions. We are not the judge. We know what Jesus said. We do what Jesus told us to do. And ultimately, we then have to hand over everything to him because we know that he is a God of justice. And we know that he's also a God of mercy. So however things pan out in the afterlife, we can trust that it will be just and merciful. We do have the parable of the brothers where one says all the right things and does all the wrong things and the other says, mm -hmm. I'm not doing that. And he goes and does what the master ordered. I yep. don't know and I... Jesus said, who is it that obeyed his father? And yeah. It was the one who actually <laughs> rolled up his sleeves and went and did what his father said and didn't just pay lip service to it. Yeah. I think there's a, there's a real balancing act that, that needs to be done here, that the church is open to the idea that people can be saved that might surprise us. Uh, but the church has received her mission. We, we each have. And yes. so our job is to do our part of the mission. And I, I think we can worry too much when we try and <laughs> put ourselves in, in, in God's position as judge. That's his job, not ours. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And this, um, um, okay, so I, 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 and you had a really lovely interview with um, Devin Brown, uh, and you got into, and you defined for him the idea of abductive reasoning, not the deductive reasoning that we are used to. Would you talk about that? Is that applicable? Is this the same question? Oh, I can definitely talk about that. Yeah. So um, we typically talk about three kinds of reasoning, deductive reasoning, inductive reasoning, and abductive reasoning. So in deductive reasoning, we derive statement B from statement A, uh, because B is a formal logical consequence of A. So the classic example is premise number one, Socrates is a man. Premise number two, all men are mortal. The conclusion, therefore, is Socrates is mortal. If those premises are correct, the conclusion is certain. So that's deductive reasoning. You then have inductive reasoning. And here we infer a general principle, B, from a body of knowledge, A. So, for example, if every swan we've ever seen is white, it would be reasonable to assume that all swans are white. Interestingly, though, this actually isn't the case. Uh, and it actually shows a problem with inductive reasoning. It can be useful, but it's not infallible. More, more data can disprove it. So that was deductive, inductive. We then have abductive. And here we infer A as an explanation of B. We start with a set of observations, and then we seek the simplest and most likely conclusion from the things we've observed. And as a result, it's technically formally equivalent with a logical fallacy of affirming the consequent, the, uh, the idea that there are actually many possible different explanations for B. But what abductive reasoning does is it's an inference to the best explanation. And I think it's really winsome in apologetics, and Lewis uses this, uh, because it, you're not trying to beat somebody over the head with a hard deduction. Yeah. It's much more of an invitation yeah. It's you basically saying to the other person, hey, I've looked at the available options and this makes most sense to me. What do you think? And there were several things in Lewis's life which his atheistic worldview couldn't really account for very well, such as joy, such as morality, such as reason. And he basically reasoned his way to a theistic universe, which he found had much more explanatory power. This was a lot of what he did with uh, Owen Barfield. He found that uh, if he if he dropped some of his atheistic materialistic presuppositions the world started to make more sense yeah and that's nice because it allows the the person you're uh talking to your interlocutor uh to do the work themselves as they're trying to get from uh, the the weak stance we all begin with to uh, something that's more plausible uh, mm -hmm. and the, yeah and i think the problem with uh, evangelization is very often we're like look this is this has to be true and so this has to be true and this has to be true so are you a christian now and people say like no <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, I think we can see out of that that questions are our friends. Whenever I, I speak about apologetics or evangelization, I always say that questions are, allow the other person to come to a truth on, under their own steam rather than being browbeaten by your affirmations as to what is true. Yeah. And really the best questions you can ever ask anybody are, what do you think? Why do you think that? 
And that's how you get the conversation going. And then you can look at individual elements of reality, things that we see. And you can say, well, when I look at this, my worldview makes a lot of sense in this. It, yeah. it, it makes sense of the data that I see. That seems to be the most logical conclusion. How do you understand it? And then the other, you're, you're inviting the other person to share their understanding. And I think you can, you can get much more distance than simply saying, okay, materialism doesn't work for this, this, and this, and this reason. This is the way that you need to think about it. Premise one, premise two, conclusion. Can you join RCIA now? That's right. And uh, it's, look, here it says in Catechism Article 1033, and here's 70,000 people at Fatima in 1917. And they're like, yeah, well, like that's, you know, the, the authority of somebody else, certainly, certainly people you never met, doesn't, doesn't, do it for, doesn't do it for the person who would much rather do the work themselves, mm -hmm. to, to take the steps in the pilgrimage, I suppose. And if you're asking them questions, they're much more likely to want to continue talking to you. Yeah, and it's liberating too because I just don't know all these answers. And that's my big problem with, with heaven and hell. I just – I have no idea. I, just, I know what I wish were true. Mm. Um, okay. So, yeah. No, Karen. I was going to ask you about Surprised by Joy. Uh, and you, you, you said a bit about – first of all, Joy is his wife's name. <laughs> but also mm -hmm. Surprised by Joy. And you propose Sehnsucht in place of – Joy, what, where'd you get that? What does it mean? So, yes, it, it's kind of complicated that Lewis married a woman named Joy. And about the time that they knew each other, he released a book called Surprised by Joy. But he wasn't actually talking about her. Right. And Zenzucht and Joy are basically the same thing. But I prefer to use the word Zenzucht because whenever I speak to anybody about Zenzucht, their first question is, what does that mean? Yeah. And that's a really good place to start. Whereas if I talk about joy, people might think that they know what I mean. But Lewis had a, a very specific understanding of that word. Um, and he talks about this in his spiritual autobiography, Surprised by Joy. And it was actually the first book that I read as an adult. And I abandoned it. I had loved hmm. the Chronicles of Narnia growing up. And I think I was, must have been 21 when I picked up a copy of Surprised by Joy. I was like, oh, yeah, it's the Narnia guy. And I just I had no idea what he was talking about. In his autobiography, he recalls a number of experiences where he encountered what he calls joy. Uh, the first example is when he has a memory of a miniature toy garden that his brother made in a biscuit tin lid. Uh, and in there, he says, uh, it was difficult to find words strong enough for the sensation which came over me. Milton's enormous bliss of Eden. He says that comes, some, come, that comes somewhere near it. It was a sensation, of course, of desire, but desire for what? not certainly for the biscuit tin filled with moss, or even though it came through it, of my own past. And before I knew what I desired, the desire itself was gone. The whole glimpse withdrawn, the world turned commonplace again, or only stirred by a longing for the longing that had just ceased. It had happened only a moment of time, and in a certain sense, everything else that had ever happened to me was insignificant in comparison. Yeah. So he describes this mysterious experience. His brother brings him this little toy garden he's made on a biscuit tin. And when Lois remembers that, he, he, there's something that stirs within him that's caught up beyond the commonplace world. And he gives a couple of other examples. He talks about when he read Squirrel Nutkin by Beatrix Potter. He said that he enjoyed most of the other books, uh, but he said that when he read Squirrel Nutkin, he was enamored by autumn, which is just a very strange thing yeah. to say. And, and he says... Whenever he went back to the book, it wasn't to gratify, gratify this desire, but to reawaken it within him. And he also talks about when he first heard, uh, it's a line of poetry from Tegna's Drapper. Uh, I heard a voice that cried, Balder the Beautiful is dead, is dead. And I, I think this is the most illuminating passage where Lewis explains what he's talking about. He said, I knew nothing about Balder, but instantly I was uplifted into huge regions of northern sky. I desired with almost sickening intensity something never to be described. Uh, and then, as in the other examples, I found myself at the very same moment already falling out of that desire and wishing I was back in it. So in all of these, common, in all of these experiences, there's a commonality that a desire is just comes alive within him, but it's no sooner arrived than it's dying and falling away. And Lewis explains in his book, he says that the reader who finds these episodes of no interest shouldn't read this book any, any further. He, but he says, this is the central story of my life. And he says, for those who are still disposed to proceed, uh, 
he just wants to underscore the common uh, quality of the experiences. Uh, it is of an unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. I call it joy, which is here a technical term, must be sharply distinguished from both happiness and from pleasure. Joy, in my sense, has indeed one characteristic and one only in common with them. The fact that anyone who's ever experienced it will want it again. Apart from that, and considered only in this quality, it might almost equally be called a particular kind of unhappiness or grief. But then it's the kind that we want. I doubt whether anyone who has tasted it will ever, if, both in, if it were both in his power, exchange it for all the pleasures of the world. But then joy is never in our power, and pleasure often is. So this awakening of desire that he had, and it was prompted often by nature, by art, by music, Lewis wanted to know where does that come from? And I would really just draw a straight line between this experience and one of Lewis's favorite arguments for God, the argument from desire. He talks about this in Mere Christianity when he says that uh, you know, a, a duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. A man has sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. And he says, if there is something within me uh, with, that I desire that can't be found in this world, that tells me that I was made for another world. And it was by chasing down joy that Lewis ultimately found God because he saw it as a signpost pointing both to God and to another world. And in a, we could say that the, that the thing, the tool we most, the tool that we have been given that's most useful for the search is our own selves, that my brain and my heart and my body, they are, they're in the world, but they're not of the world. And so we're mm. seeking for this, um, we're seeking for this other place. And it, I think it's the oldest story in the world. It could be, uh, you know, um, what's the, what's the boy and horse and his boys that core or core. And I forgot, but <laughs> <laughs> core or Shasta. Yeah. Core, right. He's, he's not really a, a stable hand. He's actually a, a distant prince. And I think like, you know, Harry Potter is something more than he seems or Luke Skywalker is more than he seems. This is, we're all, mm -hmm. we, we keep telling these things over and over and over again. Um, but then when you start to get the real story, it's so beyond anything you would into. Like our, our Christian narrative is so elaborate and long and interesting and complicated and hard to explain. How do we know our story is right? I would say it's complicated and it's not. Yeah. I, I mean, the, when Lewis went searching for joy, he ultimately found Jesus. <laughs> uh, and it was, it was by chasing down that experience that he had and to try and make sense of it. And in terms of sorting out Christianity from other worldviews, Lewis himself used a litmus test, which a lot of apologists like to use as well, which is the person of Jesus. Almost every religion has something to say, say about Jesus. So if we can understand who Jesus is, then we can go a long way in terms of understanding the nature of God. And in mere Christianity, Lewis presents what is commonly known as his trilemma, uh, which he stole from G.K. Chesterton and lots of other older authors. And it basically says that Jesus is either a liar, he is a lunatic, or he is who he claimed to be, namely the Lord. Mm -hmm. There's no middle way. There's no, there's no here is somebody we invented later because people no. went and gave their lives insisting that what they saw was true. Yeah, even, even skeptics like Bart Ehrman, he doesn't deny that Jesus exists. In fact, he wrote an entire book saying that he did because mythicists would often quote Bart Ehrman thinking that he was on their side. Uh, but the existence of Jesus of Nazareth and his crucifixion is probably one of the best attested events in history. Yeah, yeah. And then all the concomitant, uh, you know, uh, St. Paul falling from his horse and blinded and uh, hearing the voice of Jesus, like all this is either true or it's not true. And if it's mm -hmm. true, that explains why he would dedicate his life and risk death and shipwreck and this and that, insisting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's often expressed in a minimal facts hypothesis. Basically, what, what, are the, what are the facts of the beginning of Christianity which aren't in dispute? Namely, Jesus' existence, his crucifixion, the empty tomb, the conversion of skeptics like his kinsman James, 
and the St. Paul on the road to Damascus, who didn't have a horse. That's just in the Caravaggio picture. Scripture says nothing about a horse. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> Where did I get the horse? <laughs> uh, from Caravaggio. Yeah, it, okay. it, it, it is quite amazing how, yeah. how some things get in our head. You're absolutely convinced. It's, it's the same thing that everybody talks about, the three wise men, and then you go to Scripture, and it's like, oh, it doesn't actually quite say that. Yeah, or the fruit, <laughs> the fruit in Genesis. It's not necessarily an apple. It's a fruit. Mm. Yeah. It was actually most likely it was often depicted as an apple uh, because of the Latin word malum yeah. uh, of apple and evil being the same thing. Ah. Yeah. So, okay. So um, let me ask you about the, our view of the cosmic battle that's still going mm. on every day today and yet has already been won. We have a church militant and a church triumphant. They're both going on at the same time. Is that the good news that we're on the winning side or how do you understand this? I would say it's pretty good news. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's good to know that the, that the battle has been won. Yeah. Uh, you know, when 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 people are getting depressed about what's happening in politics uh, locally in whatever country you live in, I always encourage people go and look at the end of the Book of Revelation. Everything mm. is going to be okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, but the the idea of uh, and you don't have to is... win whatever you're worried about. You don't have to win right now. Well, there's 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 a, there's a line from uh, Saint Mother Teresa of Calcutta. She said that God calls us to be faithful, not successful. Yes. That what what God asks of us is our heart and our mind and our obedience, um, and everything else after that is is kind of a footnote. That's so liberating. Um, I think the same thing about the first three beads of the rosary. I'm praying for faith, for hope, and for love. Nowhere am I praying for righteousness or you know making the right choices all day long or you know. Like that's not asked of me. That's beyond my pay grade. Well, well, very often Jesus simplified things. Yeah. Uh, he said, "Seek first the kingdom of God, and all yeah. this other stuff will be added to you." Um, there was often the discussion about which was the greatest commandment in the law, and both Jesus and Saint Paul identify love of God and love of neighbor, and show that everything else hangs off this. So, in some ways, things are kind of simple love god love people and then everything else just pretty much sorts itself out but the the idea that we are in a battle uh, you find it throughout lewis's works and you know he wrote during and between two world wars so battle imagery was something that he drew upon quite often because that was um, that was imagery that his his readers knew really well and in mere christianity he he describes the incarnation as uh, God landing in enemy-occupied territory, mm-hmm. that, he's in, that he's in disguise. And he's wanting to start a, he calls it a secret society to undermine the devil. And he even asks, why didn't he land in force? Why wasn't this like D-Day instead? Mm-hmm. Um, and he says that Christians think that one day he will land in force, but we just don't know when, at the, at the second coming. But he says... We can guess why he's delaying. He wants us to give. He wants to give us the chance of joining his side freely. And in an example that would have been very appropriate to many of his readers, he says, "I do not suppose you or I would have thought much for Frenchmen who waited till the Allies were marching into Germany and then announced he was on our side." Yeah, yeah, and and it, but is even that metaphor where you know Germany and England are in the same order of strength? Okay, maybe by 1944. America, Britain, the Soviets together are far stronger than Germany, but they're the same category of power. And this is absolutely not true with God and the devil. Yeah, and Lewis underscores that many times. He says that the opposite of God is not the devil. Uh, the opposite of the devil is St. Michael. But, and in mere Christianity, he, he emphasizes this because he wants to pull apart the idea of dualism, the idea that in the world there is a good power and a bad power and they're just locked in this eternal battle. No, he is. He, he believes what Genesis says, that God made the world and it's good. There's no, none of this Gnostic or dualistic ideas. Um, instead, you have God who is the source of everything, all goodness, the very source of being himself. And what Satan is, is he's is an angel who has gone bad. And here we come back to that idea from St. Augustine, um, that, that the devil is, is a great power, but one that is twisted, but still nothing in comparison to God. Last week... Uh, I think I repeated your point. I think I got it from you that there's a benefit to him never becoming a Catholic because he <laughs> acts as a bridge 
uh, mm. between the Protestants and the Catholics, and it's very easy for Protestants to admire him, whereas they might have rejected uh, Lewis as a, you know, with all his Romish popery, had he swum the Tiber. Uh, mm. Is that, is that, did I get that idea from you? <laughs> I, I quoted, I, I quoted it to uh, Annabelle Mosley last week, and I think it's your idea. Uh, kind of. I, I know you've had Joseph Pierce on the show, and he, he talks about Lewis's relationship with the Catholic Church and actually wrote the book on the subject. Uh, maybe um, that's where I got it. Uh, it. It is understandable why Catholics love Lewis. You just look at what he believed and things seem familiar. You know, he went to auricular confession to an Anglican priest. He received spiritual direction. In The Weight of Glory, he says that next to the Blessed Sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. He wrote beautifully about purgatory, some of the best stuff in Letters to Malcolm. And it's always what I go to when I'm talking with somebody who doesn't believe in purgatory. I go to C.S. Lewis to talk about it. And funnily enough, he even corresponded with a saint. He exchanged letters in Latin with Don Giovanni Calabria, who hmm. would later be declared Saint Calabria. And Lewis's relationship with Catholicism was interesting because he always tried avoiding talking about denominational differences. He felt that he was called to speak to mere Christianity. And even Pope St. John Paul II, when he met uh, Lewis's secretary, a guy called Walter Hooper, he, he spoke about Lewis and he said he knew what his apostolate was and he went and did it. And that was to push forward mere Christianity, to get people through the door. He did have some issues with Catholicism. And when he was eventually pushed to speak about them in letters, he would typically refer to the authority of the Pope and the veneration of Our Lady as his chief impediments. Uh, but his friend Tolkien, he blamed what he called Lewis's ulterior motive, which is a pun on Ulster. And ah. it was this, this idea that... <laughs> the deep-seated distrust of Catholics, which was inculcated into Lewis as a child, Lewis, uh, Tolkien thought it never entirely left him. And Lewis admits that he was inculcated in this way. Uh, he writes, at the first coming into the world, I was implicitly warned never to trust a papist. And at my first coming into the English faculty, explicitly never to trust a philologist. And Tolkien <laughs> was both. And so... Whichever way you want to parse it, and I think there, there's only so much data, so you, you, you're very much going to bring your own opinions as to the why did Lewis not embrace Catholicism. But I would say in some ways it doesn't so much matter because of his value today, the fact that he can be a bridge for all of us uh, to talk together. There's, uh, I, I've often heard a story of uh, a big council of different churches that were Eastern Orthodox Catholic and different varieties of Protestant there. And so they were hammering out things like justification and debating all day. And at the very end of the conference, one of the Eastern Orthodox representatives wants to put forward a joint statement that while we have our disagreements, we all affirm the sacred scriptures, the early ecumenical councils, and the complete works of C.S. Lewis. <laughs> because he is so loved. Yeah. Pope St. John Paul II, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, they were all familiar with his work. And he, he expresses the faith in different languages, and very often that can help us get past the, the, the polemics that we often fall into. Uh, Lewis expresses purgatory, I found, in a way that many Protestants will find much more acceptable. So he, he's, he's a good translator when we're trying to discuss some of these issues which, which divide us. And speaking a little, little selfishly as, as a Catholic, many people actually credit Lewis in part with their conversion to Catholicism. People like uh, Peter Kreeft, uh, Dwight Longnecker, Thomas Howard, and even Lewis's own secretary, Walter Hooper. He was uh, an Anglican priest after he had been Lewis's secretary, and then he ultimately converted to Catholicism. Hmm. So we, we can make some guesses as to why Lewis had his issues with Catholicism, but I think really that, that that's, that's mostly speculation. I think we can... We can use him much more productively if we focus on how he communicated the faith as he saw it uh, and helping people who are normally not uh, on the same page actually get onto the same page. Fascinating. So you are uh, a Byzantine Catholic. Why mm. are you a Byzantine Catholic? I guess, what is a Byzantine Catholic? Why are you a Byzantine Catholic? <laughs> uh, so the Catholic Church is actually a communion of churches. And these churches have a number of different rites. Uh, the Latin rite is the one that most people will be familiar with. Uh, but there are other rites, the Byzantine, uh, the Coptic, the Armenian. Um, and 
these are different expressions of the same Catholic faith. Basically, when the apostles went out after Pentecost and spread the faith throughout the world, you had these different centers of, of the Christian faith. And around that developed a particular theological language, uh, a particular way of celebrating the Eucharist. And this is where we get these different rites and these different churches. And so if you say went to a Byzantine church, you, uh, a typical Latin rite Catholic would notice some differences. Rather than a spire on the church, there's a dome. Because in the East, we see the dome as the kingdom of heaven uh, coming to earth. Rather than statues, you would find icons and a big icon screen called an iconostasis separating out the sections of the church. You may not see pews at all. You won't see a confessional because while we have the sacrament of confession, we just don't celebrate it like that. And even the entire liturgy itself is different. I mean, even the name that we give to it in the West, we call it the mass. And that actually comes from the Latin dismissal. Ite missa est, go you are sent. Ah. Whereas in the East, it, the liturgy wasn't in Latin, it was in the vernacular. And so we just call it the divine liturgy. And if any of your listeners go to a divine liturgy, they'll notice immediately that it's entirely sung, including the readings. There's only the sermon, the homily, uh, and one prayer before receiving communion that isn't actually sung. The, the readings will be a little different because a different lectionary is used. Uh, rather than genuflecting, they'll be bowing, There'll be many signs of the cross, and the sign of the cross will also be done in a slightly different way. It'll be to the right shoulder first. Mm -hmm. And very often people will gather three fingers together to symbolize the Trinity and another two fingers together to symbolize the union of Christ's two natures and his union with the church. Um, you'll see thuribles, which you'll recognize before, but now they'll have bells on, each representing the apostles. And there's usually one that doesn't have a little clangor in, in it to represent Judas. <laughs> and you'll... You'll, you'll hear Mary mentioned actually more than you'll typically hear it in a, in a Western Mass, uh, but she'll be called by her Greek title, Theotokos, or Theotokos, meaning the God-bearer. And communion itself will be distributed from a single chalice with the, the consecrated bread with the body intinct in the wine and distributed on a, a little spoon. So there, there are lots of differences, but to answer your question, yeah. Why do I go to a Byzantine church? I just fell in love with it. It's just yeah. that simple. That's lovely. That's lovely. I, Of course, there's more to talk about, but I regret that I have to stop because my students are on their way. Um, <laughs> so let me just say thank you so much, David Bates, for talking to me about C.S. Lewis, the, your, your love and your work. And um, thank you for all your many contributions to our uh, great church. And may I ask you, please, for a blessing for our listeners and for our world. Of course. I chose the collect of the Episcopal Church from November 22nd because it's actually a collect in honor of Lewis. O God of searing truth and surpassing beauty, we give thee thanks for Clive Staples Lewis, who sanctified imagination and lighteth fires of faith in young and old alike. Surprise us also with thy joy and draw us into that new and abundant life, which is as in Christ Jesus who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Nails, spear shall pierce him through the cross. Be born for me, for you. And hail, hail the Word made flesh, the babe, the Son of Mary. David Bates and Chris Odinius recorded this conversation on April 4th, 2022, the feast day of St. Isidore of Seville, who was bishop of that great city in the 7th century and presided over the Council of Toledo, Holy Toledo, and wrote the history of the Goths. Our music is from Josh and Margot of the Great Space Coaster Band. Their website is www.gscoasterband.com. Our logo, the image of the dog, is taken from a stained glass window at Santo Domingo de Silos near Burgos in Spain and is taken with the kind permission of the Dominican Friars of England, Scotland, and Wales from their website, www.english.op.org. I'm Chris Odinius. Please email me with comments, questions, ideas for future episodes at almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. And I thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you soon. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and